Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Forum's Matzav podcast. I'm Eli Koaz, Communications and Digital Director at IPF. And I'm Noah Schusterman, the Research and Communications Fellow. This week's episode will focus on Palestinian incitement. A turbulent week in Jerusalem sparked unrest in the region as protests continued at the entrance to the Temple Mount following the Israeli decision to place metal detectors at the entrance to the site. Friday night, we witnessed the heinous murder of three Israelis in Chalamish by a Palestinian from a nearby village who invaded their home as they were welcoming the Shabbat. Two days later, a young Jordanian-Palestinian attacked the Israeli embassy in Amman, attempting to stab the security guard, who subsequently shot and killed the attacker. Another Jordanian who was present at the scene was killed by a wandering bullet. In order to clean up this mess, the Israeli cabinet reached a deal with the Jordanian leadership to take down the metal detectors in response for the quick return of the embassy staff and the security guard. Israeli leaders have attributed these latest attacks to incitement from the Palestinian leadership, including the monthly salaries paid to Palestinian prisoners and their families. Here to help us understand the Palestinian perspective is Samir Makhlouf, the CEO of Zimam, a growing progressive grassroots movement striving to strengthen nonviolent voices in the Palestinian territories committed to a two-state solution. Samir, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here. Let's just get right into it. Does this incitement exist? Is it coming directly from the Palestinian leaders? Okay, before answering the question, it's not a yes or no question. It's kind of we need, first of all, to agree on what's incitement because the, um, the Israeli definition and especially the Israeli government's definition for incitement is very broad and very elastic. And, um, um, you know, like many experts and the specialists talk about this uh, a lot. And uh, um, the Israeli society, I mean, the Israeli government, you know, um, in many cases refer to anything that is coming from these Palestinian government or Palestinian political fractions or even organizations as an incitement, while in fact, you know, uh, it could be something just, you know, normal or even nationalistic on, on our side. So um, incitement is something, you know, uh, that calls to kill people, you know, or to use, to use violence against people in order to achieve a political goal. You know, a direct call like this could be uh, uh, um, defined as an incitement, but I'm afraid that, you know, we don't have a common or clear definition for that. This is why it's kind of a very problematic issue and a very problematic term. And we hear every time there is an issue like this, you know, the Israeli politicians, you know, the first thing that you will hear from Netanyahu or his government or ministers will say, like, this is because of the ongoing incitement of the Palestinian ter- uh, authority or Palestinian politicians. I don't believe that is true, you know. On the other hand, I do not deny that there is some forms of incitement in the Palestinian media. Some media or media outlets, you know, clearly call for, you know, the, you know uh, to, uh, to commit violence or, you know, continue with the, with the violence, which is something, as, as a Palestinian, I have a very serious problem with. But um, I don't believe that anything or the way it is defined in Israel is accurate. So how can you explain the rationale between the, behind the Martyrs Fund? Um, is it not, in a way, a sort of incitement vis-a-vis financial incentives for terrorism? So uh, the Martyrs Fund is uh, um, a very problematic, I know it is a very problematic issue, and it was raised by several 
uh, Israeli officials and the government and every time you know they raise this issue even here in New York and uh, in every meeting that I have you know sometimes people about ask about the, this funding so the issue is that you know the um, funding of the martyrs family is coming because of it's part of our social uh, security system and the families who are subject to this fund they don't get this fund because of uh, that you know because of the martyr because they became eligible according to this system so they lost their uh, breadwinner and they lost their you know the, the one who's providing them uh, uh, the well-being or the the food or j- the job and therefore they get uh, the money as you know becoming as an eligible okay. uh, um, so to be system. eligible for the money you don't necessarily have to attack Israelis the money is not paid because of something happens for example someone might die normally like because okay. of a heart attack a okay. father of a, of a family might might die as a heart attack or as a result of a heart attack and the family will be subject to mm-hmm. uh, funds like okay. this okay. and unfortunately uh, this case you know like because the families of the martyrs became eligible and subject to these mm-hmm. funds the israeli uh, uh, the government decided to make this as an issue uh-huh. in order just to kind of create more obstacles at least this is how i see it and this is how many palestinians see it uh, and i also i think the conception of when people hear the word martyr they think automatically of uh, terrorist, terrorist. Yeah. yeah but you have to know that you know the word martyr is something very uh, important and mm-hmm. something very uh, uh, even holy in our society. Mm. So the word martyrs is coming in the Arab and Palestinian culture. Is come, you know, it, it means a lot, and you know, something that we precious a lot and we respect a lot. And by the way, we have like you know uh, different kinds of martyrs. You know, if someone is going to uh, work that morning and going to bring food for his ki- children, and he goes, he dies on the way, this is considered a martyr. So we have different kinds of martyrs, not only those who are fighting in for the independence and. Uh, Again, like we are living in a conflict, and the conflict, you know, everything is abnormal. So, and like in men, in most of the conflict, someone's martyr is someone uh, like someone's terrorist, or someone's freedom fighter is someone's terrorist, and and the other way around. So, uh, um, but the the martyr in our culture is something very important, and uh, uh, this is why people respect martyrs, you know. And in many Palestinian martyrs died on the way of, of independence. Most of them, you know, died for, you know, uh, even committing, doing nothing or, you know, even uh, participating in nonviolent uh, actions. And they are as well considered martyrs. Okay, so I can understand what you're saying about basically there was some sort of significant financial change within the family, and that's why the Palestinian Authority um, gives those salaries to the families. But what about the, um, the money that's being transferred to the prisoners, to the can- to their canteen's account? Is that not supporting violence? Basically, the leadership saying, oh, it's okay that you might have committed some sort of crime against Israel, and we're going to give you 1,000, 2,000 shekels per month, so you will have something, some soda in the canteen? Yeah, like, the, like it's an important to differentiate how we define these payments for the prisoners or their families, okay? So the way it is defined in the Israeli media and the way I understand from your question is that it's kind of a reward for uh, mm-hmm. the prisoner or whoever is in prison. First of all, it is not a reward for someone being in prison. The second point, which is very important, 95% of the Palestinian prisoners that were imprisoned between 1967 until now, they committed 
charges or incidents or whatever you want to call it, you know, you want to find it, they were not serious uh, in terms of, you know, harming or killing or, you know, we live under a military... They were protesting. Exactly. We live, un- we live under a military uh, occupation and the military law is the, what's ruling. And if 20 years ago, if you hold the Palestinian flag, you will go to, to jail. So, and again, like these, the families of these people, they become eligible for uh, to be benefiting from our social system. The second uh, is that the Palestinian Authority and the ministry cannot leave these people alone because, you know, whether we agree or disagree on what they did and how we define what they did, they cannot just be left alone because, you know, they have to be taking care of their people. The third and the most important part is that if we leave these people and if the Palestinian Authority is not taking care of them, even financially, someone else will do it. And then we will leave the family in the limbo and, and, you know, without any faith. And therefore, these, we will be creating more and more desperate people who are willing to commit evil. When you say someone else will do it, probably Hamas, or is that... I'm not talking about Hamas. I'm talking okay. anyone who is w- waiting on the fence that is ready to fill this gap. You know, if we create this gap in the society, and if the Palestinian Authority, which is doing whatever they can in order to be... Do, they are doing security coordination. They are, have open channels with, with Israel. They, when they are still negotiating. So we better have them fund and support the, the prisoners and their families rather than yeah. whoever, let's say, ISIS, you know, like everyone, anyone is, is ready to fill this gap. Do you think it would be good if the Palestinian Authority decided to differentiate between a, let's say, a, a teenager that was arrested for throwing rocks at a protest and the 19-year-old that committed the murder in Khalamish? If they were to differentiate and say, the young person deserves, really, the family deserves help, this shouldn't have mm-hmm. happened... But what happened in Khalamish was completely unacceptable, and we're going to ch- reform the way we we do this. As a Palestinian, as a person, you know, as a father, I refuse and reject all forms of violence. You know, it's te- not taking us anywhere. I say it loud and clear. But I have a better solution for you. Instead of just making a differentiation between who's committing uh, a crime according to your definition or who is not, or according to an Israeli definition. Let's go a little bit further and then and have a final solution for this. You know, let's take off these settlements. Like you know, like I don't think that the finances for these families or these individuals will solve the problem. We need a political solution for this, and therefore everything else will become irrelevant and minor. The biggest problem is the conflict and the occupation, and this is the source of all problems. Once we take off this issue, I think everybody will be fine. We don't need to discuss or negotiate or even argue about you know who's paying what and for who. And on the other hand, in Israel, uh, I can you know I saw a report the other day like there are by names in Israel Israeli soldiers and individuals who killed Palestinians. They got money from the government and their families got money from the government. So we cannot just be pick and choose about, you know, how we define it, or anything that's coming for the Palestinians is not okay, and it's fine for the Israelis to do this. And even further than this, those people who committed crimes against Palestinians from the Israeli side, they were sentenced 15 years, and they were released after five years. So we are living in a conflict. It's an abnormal situation. It's a very difficult situation, unfortunate, and it's asymmetrical as well. So, yeah, I think, you know, the the solution is to find a political solution for this. And it's clear. We know the references. We know how it will look like. There is a very important 
proposal on the table, the Arab Peace Initiative, you know, like 67 borders, East Jerusalem, you know, and agreed upon and just solution for the refugees, normalization with all Arab countries and Muslim countries. Just take it and that's it. Everything else will become irrelevant and small. Mm-hmm. Just to remind everybody, the Arab Peace Initiative was, uh, was submitted by the Arab League in 2002 for complete normalization with Israel on the basis of a two-state solution uh, based on the 1967 lines. Um, Israel hasn't officially responded. It's consensus that the two-state solution will not be determined exactly on the 67 lines and there will be land swaps that will include Israeli settlements and in return the Palestinians will get land in a one-to-one ratio. Zimam is very active on social media. So, what is the most effect? What are the most effective ways to discourage young Palestinians from violence? So, uh, we have to know that the uh, situation on the ground is very dangerous, and the level of disappointment and hopelessness is unprecedented. The Palestinian youth they have a lot, like huge amount of anger in their hearts, and therefore, it is you know like when a young man or a young woman or whoever like when they have no hope and they have nothing to lose it's kind of easy for them to resort to violence in order to uh, uh, achieve their goals, at least, you know, as a sh- to show the, their anger and their uh, protest. Uh, what we say is that in, in Zimam, what, or what we say and what we do, is that we want to change and shift this negative energy into a positive one. We want these young people to live for Palestine. And this is our, our slogan, we want you alive for Palestine. Because I believe that Palestine will benefit better if they are alive, if they are doctors, if they are serving their communities, if they are well-educated, if they are participating in building our state and its institutions. So we are telling them that the uh, solution is not through committing violence or doing the violence because throughout the history and throughout the, our experience, violence took us nowhere. Look at the Second Intifada. And I say it very loud and clear. The Second Intifada, there was a strategic mistake. And the Palestinians commit this uh, horrible suicide attacks inside Israel. It changed everything. It harmed us even more than it harmed the Israelis, let alone it was non-ethical. So I think the uh, learning from these lessons, the Palestinians should only adopt the, the non-violence as an approach and as a tool to achieve their political goals. And this is what we try to extend to the Palestinians, that, you know, the roadmap and the way to achieve your goals and to be like, you know, to have your independence and self-determination is through nonviolence. And we give them examples, we lead by examples, and we show them what to do exactly. We teach them how to campaign, we teach them how to lead their own communities in order to achieve their political goals. And what's the best way, do you think, to do that in a situation when you have a Israeli coalition that is seemingly not committed to a two-state solution. How do you give these people hope? How can you convince them that living for Palestine will help them achieve a Palestinian state? Yeah, I have to admit that, you know, uh, especially after the elections in 2015, the echo in the Palestinian side was, you know, huge and was very, very negative. And uh, um, the, an increasing number of Palestinians are giving up on the two-state solution. They're not giving up on the solution itself. They are giving up or not believing that it is applicable anymore because of the changes happening on the ground. But I say, and Zimam says that, <clears throat> I don't believe that we will reach to an irreversible point. We can always change things on the ground. The way that negative facts were built, we can build positive facts in return and even dismantle what was built. Who said that we cannot dismantle settlements? You know, Even if we build like 100,000 more units, I'm not saying that it's mm-hmm. nice or it's good, it's damaging, it's very negative, it's very bad. 
and not not right, but still we can dismantle them. So uh, uh, and there is always a hope because the this solution is the only solution to uh, protect our national project. I care a lot about our national project, and this is why we try to show the Palestinians that it's important to protect this national project. What the Israeli government is trying to do is to kill this dream, to kill the potential and the possibility to create a Palestinian state. We have to stand up and to say, no, we will continue our struggle nonviolently to achieve our independence. So I'm just wondering, what is your take from the latest uh, discussion regarding the metal detectors and cameras at Al-Aqsa? I mean, they're now taking them down, but it seems like the, um, the tensions are still there, and now people are discussing the cameras. What, what is your take on things? Again, like this is, again, um, another attempt by the Israeli government to create facts on the ground. The Palestinians see these steps as not as security measures taken by the Israeli security or police in order to prevent potential attacks or whatever. These are small steps, but it means a lot when it comes to sovereignty. The Al-Aqsa Mosque and, and that the, the, the old city and that area is a very holy and a very delicate place. And the, st- the fragile f- status quo that existed since 1967 should be solved. So uh, um, I think all the measures are seen with lots of skepticism by the Palestinian side. The Israeli government will never, you know, let any opportunity like, you know, uh, unfortunately, this, these measures came after an attack that happened on Al-Aqsa Mosque. As a Palestinian, I don't think that anyone should use weapons in anywhere, especially if it's in a holy place like Al-Aqsa Mosque. So, but that gave the Israelis like the excuse to install them, but it's not a security measure. It's a political step. It's a major political step that is aiming to impose sovereignty on the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, and this is something very sensitive, and it will harm any uh, chances for reaching to a final solution. The only way to solve this tension is to, again, to agree on a political solution. If we pursue a political solution, everybody will be fine, and therefore there is no need for cameras or metal detectors or whatever. You know, everything will be decided as part of an agreement. And as far as I understand it, you know, uh, I differentiate between sovereignty and freedom of worship. This is a place that should be and will always be under the Palestinian sovereignty. Freedom of worship is a different matter. Everyone has the right to praise God wherever they see appropriate, but political sovereignty should be decided according to the agreement. Don't you think some sort of security mechanism at the site would be helpful? I just want to add as well that um, in early 2016, Israel and Jordan already came to an agreement to install uh, security cameras on the uh, premises, and then a month later, Jordan retracted and decided that it does not want to uh, install the cameras because of Palestinian pressure. So, I mean, is it really, as you said, is it really about security or about politics? But I think it's kind of from both both sides are using this, yeah. the, the issue of security to, for political I think the reasons. hardest thing here is to find a balance between something that will actually help increase security, but at the same time, it won't be perceived by the Palestinians as a threat to future Palestinian sovereignty uh, at Al-Aqsa Mosque? Yeah, um, well, I think that there, there was a status quo uh, uh, happening in Al-Aqsa Mosque and in that, in that part of the old city for a long time. A Palestinian guards were, you, you know, say, doing the security. And I'll tell you something, these people, these guards, Al-Aqsa guards, 
are more interested and caring for the protection of this site and this place. And I bet you, like, they will do everything to prevent anyone from messing up in, in that area. But these guards are not allowed to work by an order by the Israeli police, and they took the control. Now, it's a very sensitive situation. It's a very uh, um, uh, delicate situation. And therefore, if Israel allows the status quo to go back the way it used to be a few years ago, before the year 2000, these people will be in charge. And I, I bet you that they will prevent any attempt to uh, use violence or smuggle weapon inside uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So if we want security, the, the answer is there and the practical solution is there. And the uh, Palestinian uh, security can be involved as well because they were functioning in East Jerusalem before the year 2000. And uh, we have a very long relationship between the Israeli security forces and the Palestinian security forces in terms of security coordination, which the Palestinian leadership has been criticized a lot for doing this. But they see that this is a Palestinian interest as well. So if we allow this channel to work and function properly, not to be selective on how it functions, I think everybody will be fine. Samir, all this horrible news in the past uh, couple of weeks. Are you are you still optimistic? Um, I am an optimist, optimistic person in, by my nature, and yes, I am optimistic despite all what's happening. And uh, this is the reason that, you know, makes me wake up in the morning and do what I do. I am optimistic that, you know, we have a very intelligent uh, uh, young generation in Palestine who is really willing to live in peace and who is really willing to uh, just live their life normally like any other nation on earth. And that's what giving me the hope that, you know, things might be better in the future or will be better in the future. And that's what gives me the hope that, you know, uh, the time uh, uh, the, in the future, uh, there will be an agreement that, you know, will protect the, the dignity of both people and both people will be living in peace as, as good neighbors. And remember that, you know, the dawn will come after the darkest hours, and I'm afraid that we are just living the darkest hours. So it's just a matter of time. It's a matter of being insisting on our messages and insisting on achieving this political goal, and things will be fine. Thank you, Samer, for joining us, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And just a reminder, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or on SoundCloud at www.soundcloud.com slash matsav. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow IPF on Facebook and Twitter, and be sure to check out Matsav blog for the latest analysis on events in the region. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Noah. Thank you, Eli.